welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, just a moment, I'm going to invite my friend Danny uh, for Sweater Vest Sunday, which some of you know what that means, so that's pretty exciting. And I will say that Danny's Sweater Vest today is maybe top two, top three that I've ever seen, so looking forward to that. Before that happens, though, I uh, want to let you know about some things that are happening. So if you're new, welcome. We're really glad you're here. We'd love to know that you were here. On our website, there's a place you can click uh, says, I'm new. Fill that out, and that lets us know uh, how to contact you, and we will do so. I invite you to a beverage of your choice to get to know you and for you to get to know us a little bit. Uh, we would really appreciate that. Uh, if you call Awaken Home and care to know about what's happening in the life of our community, a couple things coming that we want to highlight, the first of which is our Tides of Winter Christmas concert. I don't know about you, but I'm very excited about this one. Um, last year, we had Tides of Winter scheduled, and COVID ruined that, um, so that's a bummer. But this year, um, I don't think that's going to happen, friends. I've got commitments from the band members that if uh, uh, heads will roll if they don't show up to play at Awaken on December the 17th. So uh, that's 10 bucks a ticket, and I'm telling you, uh, it, you will not regret it. If you buy a ticket to that show and you do not uh, have a great time, find me afterwards and I will give you your money back, okay? Uh, these are just some of the most dear friends of ours, and they are unbelievable musicians, and it will be a really, really special night that you won't want to miss. So if you have it available, Friday the 17th. Um, also, there is a market happening in the back, if you didn't know that, uh, during Advent. So people bring in artists, bring in things uh, to sell uh, that they've created, um, and you get to buy them and give them to your friends. So I um, wanted to highlight that, and in particular, uh, on the right as you leave, uh, Sharon is manning the table for, uh, I guess, what would you even say? Womaning the table? She's staffing the table. Thank you. I Just learning new things all the time, people. You know, just learning new things. Staffing the table on the right, uh, which is uh, cards from an organization called The Lift, which is uh, a group that we have been partnered with over the last year or so and connected to. Our Thanksgiving meals you guys brought went to the lift. So those are created by the lift and proceeds go to the lift. Uh, pretty cool there. So check those things out. Also, uh, there is, uh, oh, Christmas is coming. Um, we want to let you know what times you should know about. Uh, Christmas Eve, 2 and 4, here at Awaken. Uh, de December the 26th is Sunday after Christmas and there is no church. Um, so this one time, yeah, a couple of staff people are in the back clapping uh, I worked at a church one time, and Christmas fell on Sunday. Christmas Day was Sunday, and I was like, no, no, we should not have church that day. And I got outvoted. And so people came, a couple people, including the staff. But I, I, am, I am the pastor here, and I get to decide. My vote counts on this one. So no church on December 26th. Go walk in the woods. Go be with your family. Be with your friends. God will still be here when we get back, okay? So uh, have that day. And then January the 2nd, after the new year, we're going to do one gathering, 10 a.m., and it's Pajama Sunday, and it'll be sort of a reflection on where we saw God in the last year. It'll be a lot of fun. So that's a couple of dates coming up. Um, Danny, Sweater Vest Sunday, if you don't know. Danny Langseth is our chair, our finance chair on our advisory team, and is going to share a little bit about uh, our financial life, which is... An important part of our life, so. Birthday boy. Seriously. Can't make it up. Uh, yeah, happy Sweater Vest Sunday. Um, 
There's a lot of new people, um, so maybe you don't, you haven't been part of the tradition before. So Sweater Vest Sunday is one of the few Sundays of the year that I bring you an update on the finances. Why Sweater Vest Sunday? What says financial whiz as authoritatively as a sweater vest, right? Um, so we're now five months into our fiscal year, um, and you'll see some of the numbers coming up behind me. Our fiscal year runs from July through June, and we're a little bit behind the budget so far this year. So um, first, you'll see in green, uh, that represents our giving. Um, so far this year, we've taken in about $209,000 in gifts, and that's about 8% behind what we budgeted. Compare that to expenses, you'll see those bars are all a little bit higher. Um, we've spent about $247,000 this year. That's about 1% higher than what we've budgeted. So if you don't have your calculator out, that means a net loss of about $40,000 so far this year. That's not so uncommon um, for a nonprofit like Awaken where um, typically you might have some deficit behavior and make it up in December. Um, so this is not a sound the alarms moment by any means. We have um, good cushion um, to be able to absorb any volatility, but it is a good time to talk about uh, the financial life of our church. Um, so Awaken, like many nonprofits, is really reliant on December giving to make our budget work. Um, you might remember before uh, my middle finger chart, which will be coming up um, behind me. Um, this shows our net income by month. And so the big bar in the middle, that's December giving. Um, and using last year as an example, we took in $65,000 of net income, which allows us to sort of have some of that volatility throughout the rest of the year. So simply, we're really reliant on your year-end gifts to make Awaken's budget work. Um, so people of Awaken, this community functions because of you, the people that fill these pews, listen to the podcast. And whether you've been a partner from the beginning or whether you've just started attending Awaken in the last couple months, I want to invite you to consider supporting Awaken. Um, you can see on the screen behind me, um, there's lots of ways that you can give. Going to the website, you can text any dollar amount to 84321. You can use the black boxes. If you hit it rich on GameStop in the last year and want to make a stock gift, we can accept those too. Uh, reach out to me about that. Um, we know that for some in our community, uh, knowing that some of your money was going to the covenant has been a holdup, and so I want to alleviate that concern for you. We paused um, our support of the covenant in this season and are instead putting those funds into escrow right now. Um, so with the invitation to give, why might you consider supporting Awaken? Um, first, your support allows us to uh, support the staff with full pay and benefits. And they've been working their butts off for the last couple years. And we're so glad that this year we were able to extend all of them a full benefits package. Um, your support uh, brings all the community offerings, um, the learning labs to send kids to youth retreats, all the things that you see in the Awaken Weekly every single week. Um, we've been able to come alongside um, four members of our community that have been experiencing financial hardship with benevolence support. Um, and then beyond Awaken, your support allows us to um, pursue missional opportunities. Every Meal um, is an organization in the Twin Cities that helps families struggling with food insecurity, and we've been able to continue our partnership with them this year. So all those different parts of Awaken that you know and love, the staff, the community life, our missional activity, that can only happen because of you and your support. Um, so I want to encourage that you consider Awaken in any year-end giving um, that you might offer. Um, and thank you so much. Um, again, uh, Awaken happens because of your generosity, so thank you so much. Thank you, Danny. Uh, appreciate that. And um, I I've said this before, 
uh, I've been in ministry 22 years now, and Awaken is hands down the most generous church I've ever worked for, or heard of, or seen. Um, and so it's a privilege and an honor to be a part of this community. So thanks for what you guys do um, and making this thing possible. Uh, to that end, let's get to it, Micah. You got a sermon to preach, bro. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're in Isaiah chapter 9. This is the second week of Advent, by the way, if you didn't know. Welcome. We're glad that you're here for it. Uh, Advent is the beginning of the church calendar every year at this time. The story begins anew. And we, uh, we decided to look at one of the prophets, uh, the prophet Isaiah, for our series in Advent. And uh, we're looking at one verse, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where the prophet gives four names of God, this promised one who would come. He says these things about this person. And so last week we looked at uh, the first of those names, which is Wonderful Counselor. You probably remember the song by uh, Handel. Um, that the Messiah would be a wonderful counselor. So, you know, what does it mean that God is a counselor? That God offers this path of wisdom, this wise counsel, uh, is an advocate for us, takes up our cause and our case, stands beside us, and offers comfort, brings comfort. Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people. And so today, we're going to turn to the next name. And so, if you can, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of the word. And then uh, after that, Joy, uh, our, one of our Advent artists, is going to perform a piece connected to this passage and uh, this season. So, Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Pray with me. God, as we turn our attention to this word and these words, I ask that you would... Come draw near to us, uh, that we might have eyes to see you, ears to hear you, uh, the courage to step in faith towards you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I am an artist, but I don't consider myself a social misfit. <laughs> I adore Van Gogh but I would not cut off my ear for anyone. I adore Grand Opera, Brahms Requiem. I wouldn't think of spending Christmas without Handel. I despise most everything sold in media stores, save for the Bible and most of C.S. Lewis. Evangelical Christendom's antics, megachurches, I find unseemly. Uh, I chose the church I attend because of its architecture. I found the place a delight. The preaching is thoughtful, the earnestness understated. This year they asked me to direct, to uh, narrate their Christmas program. They gave me a script and I found it slightly zealous but acceptable. It was a retelling of the old story and they told me that the whole evening would be a triumph if they had someone with my presence to read the part. I've been in theater most of my life. <laughs> How could I say no? I may have preferred T.S. Eliot, but when drama is done with passion, the result is something very much alive. And that's what I felt that night. I stood on the proscenium and delivered the opening narration, and the crowd was stone silent. The audience read every turn of my head, every smile. When it's all perfect, what happens in theater is 
love. <laughs> it's a dance, a wonderful dance. And in the opening moments of this Christmas narration at Deer Valley Church, what happened between us was... <laughs> when I finished the narration, I walked to the back of the pulpit area. Beside me, three adolescent girls from the choir were seated on the floor. One of them had a long looping string that she wove between her fingers. The others watched and giggled while some younger children were singing their hearts out in front. This disruption beside me, the girls obviously didn't care if I heard them or not. It, it stayed with me like the plague. I pushed my foot over to the closest of them and gave her behind a kick just slightly. The face she gave me made it very clear that I was the one out of order. For the rest of the night, I never achieved the same union that I'd had with the audience as in that first scene. And I knew why. I knew the reason. It was because there were three girls beside me, behind me, who simply didn't care. And in my mind, that killed the whole performance. The longer it went on through the musical interludes in my five narrations, the more angry I became. When it was all over, I was relieved, but seething. When I left the front of the church, I wanted only to get out. Uh, a, number of, a number of people came up and thanked me for what they considered a great performance. I smiled politely. And then an old woman came up, a woman I've come to know somewhat, a retired missionary, who's probably read Luke 2 about 100,000 times and spent her whole life teaching it to children in Asia. She took my hand, pulled me down toward her face, and gave me what the scriptures call a, a holy kiss. She said, You're reading. It was as if I'd never heard the story before. You made it new. And then she nodded and was off. <laughs> I had made the old nativity story brand new to a retired missionary. <laughs> I have worked on stages throughout America. I have done Shakespeare. I have done Tennessee Williams. I even directed August Wilson. But in all the years I've done theater, in all the theater I've ever done, I never considered myself a, a vehicle, a conduit. I always thought of what I was doing as what I was doing. That night, though, I had a new sense that I'd been used. Used as if I were an hourly employee of the business of the gospel. A hundred times or more I've cried on stage. But alone in my car, the holy kiss still there on my cheek, I felt myself suddenly in company with the Lord of heaven who came to earth not just for spoiled little children, but for all of us, even me. He made me a blessing even in my pride. At that moment, I felt something totally unpracticed pinch my eyes and choke my breath. 
I wasn't acting. The Lord of heaven and earth was acting upon me. Joy. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The prophet says, Behold, for unto us a child is born, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God. What does it mean to say that God is mighty? Uh, every now and again at Awaken, I'll come down off the stage here and uh, engage you in what's called an all-play question, so I'll ask a question and, and you all just respond. Uh, if you don't respond, it doesn't work. So um, I'm going to give you the word, and then i just love to hear what you think when I say that word. Uh, what do you think when I say the word mighty? Strong. Powerful. A king. Fortress. Warrior. Others. Say it again. Strong. Self-control. Power Rangers. We had a ducks in the first hour. Mighty ducks. Uh, I was waiting for somebody to say mighty mouse, so thank you. Um, yeah. Mighty. Might. Power. Strength. Uh, all things that we, you know, maybe aren't foreign to the conversation about God, that God is strong or powerful, mighty. And yet, today, I want to I engage this word and what it means to say that God is mighty, uh, maybe in a different way. And we're going to do that by actually going back into the, the passage from Isaiah chapter 9, because what the, the prophet does in verses 3, 4, and 5 kind of sets up what happens in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, this government will be on his shoulders. So I think that those verses actually speak to what, is, what kind of might are we talking about? What kind of strength, what kind of power on display are we to wait for? Are we to understand? Are we to know about God? So um, this is a conversation for sure about might and power and strength and power on display. Uh, and I think to understand what the prophet meant and the per people who heard it first would have understood when they said, mighty God, you have to sort of get back into where were these people and what was going on at that time? How would they have heard this and what would have been going on in their minds? So uh, this is a, a small and very um, short version of Israel's history that will help maybe fill in a few of the blanks. On the left, uh, before 975, Israel was one uh, united kingdom, as it were, one um, people, uh, a monarchy with uh, kings, Saul, David, um, so on and so forth. And in 975, that kingdom splits and it becomes two separate or two divided kingdoms, 10 tribes in the north called Israel and two tribes in the south called Judah. Uh, in 721, the Assyrians, who had been threatening and sort of gaining power, eventually roll into the northern kingdom and they take over. They they conquer the northern kingdom, and they take those people into exile, and really, actually, historically, they're kind of never heard from again after that. Uh, 
The southern kingdom remains for a bit longer until the Babylonians come in 586 and they destroy the temple in Jerusalem and they take the remainder of Israel into exile. Uh, If you've read the book of Daniel, the Persians take over uh, and eventually at some point they come back to Israel in 432 and they're allowed to rebuild the temple. This is the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, Everybody tracking so far? The book of Isaiah actually would have been written sometime around the, uh, the Assyrian exile. So the prophet is prophesying and talking about the things that are coming, the ways in which the people have sort of wandered or left the, the, the path, as it were. And judgment might come through these occupying empires, that this would be allowed by God. And so this is kind of where the sliver of Isaiah happens. Um, A lot of people think that Isaiah is written by one person. Many scholars would argue it was actually written by three different people over the course of 100 or 200 years or so. So it's a document that's compiled because it has a number of first-hand accounts of historical events that would have been beyond one person's lifetime, right? So chapters 1 through 39 are written by the Isaiah of Isaiah chapter 1, who announces himself as such, which is where our passage finds itself. So... um, This is who Isaiah is, this is the book, and this is a little bit about the history of where they find themselves at this point. Um, This occupying empires is first and foremost a theological crisis for the people of God, as much as it is a political crisis or a humanitarian one. They are God's people, they are the chosen ones of Israel. So um, is God sovereign or not? Is God the one true God or not? Are these pagan idols in other countries uh, that these other people are worshipped? How do they fit into this? Uh, is God's divine judgment sort of uh, God's divine rejection? Uh, have we been rejected by God? So all of these questions are rolling around in their heads and in their hearts when this book comes along. And so when we think about how to understand the idea of mighty God, I would suggest that it has to be in terms of Empire and power, oppression, slavery, exile, because this was their context. So when the prophet says that God will be mighty, the people are thinking in that way. Uh, if you remember this summer, we, stu- we studied a passage about the prophet Elisha, who, you know, the, um, uh, a whole host of armies uh, have sort of gathered around the prophet and the people, and the servant of Elisha says, like, we're doomed. And Elisha says, no, God, open his eyes. And he does, and they see this host of an army, the, the Lord of hosts, the mighty God, as it were. So for the ancient Israelite people who lived in this world defined by tribes and um, clans where warriors and armies would have fought for king to ensure protection in a future, mighty God means power. It means aggression. It means domination. It means Fighting uh, horses, chariots, things like this. Um, even Jesus, you know, 400 years later, the disciples are asking Jesus questions that are rooted in this kind of thinking. Is this the time when you'll restore the kingdom, when you'll kick out the Romans who took over after the Babylonians and the Persians, right? And the Greeks. Is this the time when you're going to sort of send them all packing and we're going to be on top again and you're going to be the king and we're going to be in your court? You remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane with Peter and the disciples. The Romans come and they capture him and Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off the guy's ear. Which is one of those moments in scripture where you just kind of have to laugh. You know, like, did he miss? Was he aiming for the ear? Like, was this like a shot across the bow? Like, don't touch my guy, I'll take your other ear. You know, 
Um, but either way, Jesus responds, and his response, I would argue, is right out of the heart of Isaiah 9. He says, Peter, put your sword away. If you draw the sword, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. We're going to redefine what mighty really means in this moment. So Isaiah, the prophet, he's telling the people who have been walking in great darkness, for unto you a child is born, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called, wonderful counselor, almighty God. But might doesn't mean what you think it means. You can play the tape in your head right now of uh, Princess Bride. You keep using this word. It doesn't mean what you think it means. This is the great flip, the paradox, the sort of upside-down nature of this story and this person. In a world that's dominated by violence and power and bloodshed, in a particular version of might, the prophet says, this God will be mighty, but it will be very different than how you understood it before. And it will be good news, in fact. So, let's back up a little bit. Verses 3, 4, and 5. And we'll sort of work our way back to verse 6. The prophet, Isaiah, is using past tense, if you notice, in verses 3, 4, 5. He says, you have enlarged the nation as if something has already happened. It's called the prophetic past tense. So this is what the prophet's saying. As if if it's already happened, he's predicting something that will be. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing plunder. So if you're oppressed, if you're enslaved, if this is your life, and the boot of the empire is literally and metaphorically squeezing the life out of you, I would imagine some of your deepest fears would be that you would be erased, that you would be remembered no more. In the ancient world, sons meant everything so that the family line would keep going. If you're enslaved, if you're oppressed, do we have a future? Is, will there be a tomorrow? And the prophet says, not only are you preserved, but you have been enlarged. Where there was scarcity, there is actually now abundance. And there's joy welling up. If you've ever suffered, and if, you, if you're a parent and you have kids and you've suffered, the thing you want most for your kids is to see delight and joy in their eyes. And when that's gone, it's bleak, is it not? That's a hard day. The prophet says no. You, have been, you will be enlarged. You, you increased your joy. You'll rejoice as though people rejoice at harvest. If you're oppressed and enslaved, you, you live in a constant state of scarcity where the empire feeds you enough to keep you alive because you're an asset, but they never give you more than enough. There's no sense of abundance. There's no sense of overflow. There's no sense of welling up. It's just enough to get by. And the prophet says, No, the people will rejoice as if the harvest has just come in. And as warriors rejoice when dividing plunder. If you're oppressed and you're enslaved, what you don't experience is victory. It's like being a Viking fan. Just, sorry. Always hoping. Never, Never there, though. No, what you don't experience is victory. It's just always defeat. So the prophet says, when the might of God comes, increase, not decrease, abundance, not scarcity, victory, not defeat. Because in verse 4, he reminds them that the might of God comes and they are freed from oppression. 
For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. The prophet reminds them, he goes back, he tells a story. The Midianites, this is Judges chapter 6, the story of Gideon and the fleece, if you remember that one. When the army gets whittled down to this small group of people, in their weakness, God's power and might is on display, and the, the people are liberated and freed. According to ancient sources, the Assyrians loved to brag about the yoke of oppression that they would put on their people, their slaves. And the prophet says, the mighty God will break the bonds of oppression and the yokes of slavery. You can almost hear Jesus saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light later. So verse 3, increase, abundance, victory. Verse 4, freedom from oppression. And here's the turn. Here's the turn. The promise of freedom and liberation from violence and oppression through the might of God. But how will it happen? And at this point, you, you know, if you're talking about power and might and kingdoms and empire, it's an obvious answer, right? We've seen the story. We, it happens all the time. It's just more. It's just bigger, right? But verse 5 says, Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. What is he saying? He's saying what he said in, in chapter 2 earlier. He, God, will be the judge between nations, will settle disputes. They will beat their swords into plowshares. What has been a weapon will become a tool of sustenance. They will turn their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. The psalmist says, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth, breaks the bow, shatters the spear. See, friends, if you don't hear anything else today, I hope that you hear this. The might and power of God that the prophet is talking about, that Jesus embodies, does not use the same chess pieces that have been on the board of humanity. When we're talking about power and might, the might of God, it's a different game. It's, a total, it's different pieces. It's a whole different category. This is what Brianna's poem was talking about last week and what she quoted Walter Brueggemann who talks about kingdoms and powers and what we need is not using the same uh, resources and tools to fix the problems but like a completely invasion of another reality. That's the kingdom of God. God does not use oppression to stop oppression. God doesn't use violence to stop violence. God doesn't use bloodshed to stop bloodshed. Right? This is the wonder of the cross. It's as if God says, no more for one time at the end. Jesus, sacrifice, but no more bloodshed for anyone because that's not how it works. There is this, there is this sense of, uh, when you start talking about power and might and God, uh, there's this belief out there that somehow God is kind of like the biggest, baddest version of violence and oppression and bloodshed, right? Um, There's, there is, there was, there is, there was once this pastor uh, who out in Seattle who talked about like God as William Wallace, you know, like Braveheart. Jesus is like William Wallace. He's like the biggest, baddest dude with a big, huge sword and blood, you know, running down his face. And I was actually in researching for this. I, I was like, you know, online looking for things, and I found this article from this guy uh, who writes for a, a periodical called Today. Uh, and he's talking about this El Gibor. That's the Hebrew for mighty God. And he writes this. He says, 
In our war-torn world, we often shrink away from military language to describe God today. But here, in many other places, God reveals himself in words that portray him as a great warrior. Should we shy away from describing our God that way? Not if that's how he reveals himself. I don't know if you're familiar with this line of thinking that like God is just has like the most F-16s and like the biggest bombs and like is the most powerful warrior and the, the biggest, baddest dude out there. So if you're in trouble, you got that guy on your team. And I just want to like check that for a second and say, I think that's completely inaccurate and false. That this is not how God works and this is not how God shows up in the world. God does not use oppression to stop oppression. Doesn't use bloodshed to stop bloodshed. But rather does something totally different. Changes the game. There's this great line from The Hurricane. It's a, a movie. Denzel Washington plays this character, Reuben Carter. He's wrongfully accused and imprisoned for 30-some years. And at the end of it, he's right before the last like dramatic court scene and He's having this conversation with this, this kid named Lezra. And he says to Lezra, hate put me in this prison, but love's going to bust me out. Like, this is the way the world operates, where it's violence and oppression and hate and darkness. And that's what put me in this prison, but what's going to bust me out is not more of the same. Not using those tactics. Actually, it's a completely different game. Love's going to bust me out. The mighty God of Isaiah 9 that's promised is one who finds a solution that doesn't share the assumptions that the game is played by. One of the reasons why I love the Hunger Games is for this this fact. Right at the end of the first one, do you remember this? When Katniss and Peeta are the last two, you know, if you don't know the story, like the Hunger Games, these 24 people, they fight each other to the death, and the last one alive wins the Hunger Games and the, the, the Empire, right? Uh, the people, the, the culture, they watch it for entertainment. And it's great fun, and everybody's entertained by it. And Katniss and Peeta get to the end, and they're like, you know what? We're not playing by these rules. So they decide to eat the Nightlock together, and d- both die. Like, they're both, there will be no Hunger Games winner. Right? It's like they transcend the game. They won't play by the rules. Because they recognize that, like, more of that isn't going to solve the problem. When we think about the problems and the politics and the the divisions that we have in our world, and we think that in any way, shape, or form that God would solve those problems by using the same tactics that got us there, that's insanity, people. It just doesn't work. If it would have worked, you'd think we would have figured it out by now, right? But here we are, in a mess, in so many ways. So I come to you with Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. That this promised one will be mighty, powerful, full of strength. But that power and that strength and that might does not look like what you think it might look like. It's the complete opposite. It's sacrifice. It's humility. It's service of even your enemy. And the challenge for you and I, as we think about Advent and Christmas and this story, it's nonsense when you think about it. That somehow, sacrificial love is going to beat all the weapons and all the might and power that is out there in the world. And yet, I said last week, we'll keep coming back to this question. It's quite simple. 
Do you believe that's true? That's the invitation today. That there is a different game. There are a, there's a whole nother kingdom, a whole nother reality, a whole nother empire that is rooted in something that is fundamentally different than the world that we live in day in and day out. And you and I, when we have moments where someone lashes out, disrespects, uses violence, diminishes you, you have a choice to either return the favor, volley back what came to you, or take it out of the system. To absorb that. That's the strength and the power of the gospel. That's the strength and power of God. That all the darkness and all the defeat and all the evil is absorbed in the death of Jesus. And then resurrected in a new way. A new world, a new reality, right here, right now. So you and I, we go to work, we go to our families, we go to the things that we do. And these things happen to us, do they not? And you have a choice every day. A, today, when you leave, maybe right now, in the parking lot, when somebody, right? Will you respond in kind, or will you respond differently? I'm not super proud. Uh, uh, parenting's hard work, friends. Let's be honest about that. Uh, and there are, there are a few shining moments in my parenting career, one I would like to share with you today. <laughs> For whatever reason, this, this idea of take it out of the system, Laura and I latched onto as parents, and so when our kids would come to us early on, and somebody was mean to them on the playground, or did something to them that was, that was awful, we always said, we said, you have a choice. You can respond in kind. You can return the volley. Or you can choose to take it out of the system. Because when you don't take it out of the system, it's just a feedback loop. And if you know anything about sound and how it works, when you hear that crazy sound, you get a mic that feeds back, that's just the same tone repeating itself getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what happens when we respond in kind. We just keep the feedback loop going. And Isaiah 9 the story of Advent, the person of Jesus, offers a different way. That the might and the power of God, it looks different. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like selflessness. It looks like laying down your life even for your enemy. And I guess I'll leave you with, do you believe that's true? The answer to that question, I think, changes everything. And I think it's, it's the hope of the gospel that that is true. That Jesus' death does absorb the evil and the darkness and is resurrected in a new way and offers it to you and me. That's the gospel, friends. I hope you believe that's true. And I hope you live your life as if it is. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we take just a moment to be still, the busyness of holiday season is all around us. Will you just carve out a small little bit of sacred space in this place to be still, to listen to the, the, still, the small voice of your spirit reminding us that the might and power of God on display, it's not power over, it never is, and that will not change our realities. It won't change the world. So draw us near to you, to your heart, to your path. Give us courage to step into it 
with our whole bodies. I pray, speak to us now, Holy Spirit. Uh, good to be with you all. Happy Advent. Uh, I have nothing more to say but this blessing, so I hope you receive it, uh, you take it, you live it, you let it shape and form you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Church said together, amen, amen. See you next week. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.